Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Stott says that the central message of the gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the human divine figure. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen. And I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham, paying tribute to the Reverend John Robert Walmsley Stott. Today's sermon is taken from a series entitled Day to Day. John Stott emphasizes the importance of daily worship. Well, day by day is our theme throughout these six Sunday mornings. We are seeking to discover at a deeper level that the Christian life is lived a day at a time. The Christians need to learn to live today in remembrance of yesterday and in anticipation of tomorrow. Last Sunday, our topic was daily grace. We thought that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. We might have taken the verse in Psalm 69, verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears me up. We're conscious of our dependence on his daily grace. Today, our subject is daily worship. For daily worship is the response to daily grace. If we receive God's grace from day to day, we respond in love and gratitude to him from day to day. Worship. You know, whenever we talk about worship, we are touching the very center of human being. When we are speaking about worship, we are approaching the ultimate reality that lies behind all the phenomena that we can apprehend by our five senses. It's not in the very least exaggerated to say that human beings are worshipping beings, that human beings on their knees in worship before God are at their noblest and their most human and that a human being who refuses to worship God has literally ceased to be human. That is not an exaggeration. It's thoroughly biblical. And many writers, many thoughtful writers have recognized it. You know Dostoevsky in The Possessed. Those eloquent words, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men and women are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living, but die of despair. Or here's William Blake, man must and will have some religion. And if he has not the religion of Jesus, then he will have the religion of Satan. 
and will erect the synagogue of Satan, calling the prince of the world God, and destroying all who do not worship Satan under the name of God. One more example, I'm sure many of you saw Peter Schaffer's play, subsequently became a film called Equus, and in it you may recall the young 17-year-old boy, Alan Strang, had an atheist father who replaced in his bedroom his picture of the suffering Christ with a picture of a horse, Equus, to which Alan transferred his worship until it became a painful and even a passionate obsession and led him to blind some horses in a stable. The lady magistrate keeps urging Martin Dysart, the psychiatrist, to rid the boy of his pain. But Dysart knows the emptiness of his own life. He fears that the boy cannot lose his pain without losing his passion. And the psychiatrist goes on, can you think of anything worse that you can do to anyone than take away their worship? Alan, the boy, has felt a passion more ferocious than I've ever had in my life, says the psychiatrist. And then, without worship, you shrink. You do. A non-worshipping soul is a shrunken soul. We only grow into the fullness of our humanity when we learn to worship God through Jesus Christ. Yet the concept of worship, especially daily worship or continuous worship, is foreign to many people, even to Christians. Or weekly worship, yes, here we are, Sunday after Sunday, regular worship, we can just about take that. But daily worship, too demanding, too religious, bordering on the fanatical, even some theological colleges that have daily chapel don't seem always to have daily worship. When the famous uh, canon B.K. Cunningham was principal of Westcott House in Cambridge two generations ago, they used to sing the Te Deum in Westcott House Chapel every day except Friday. And one Friday, B.K. Cunningham, the principal, in an absent-minded moment, gave out the Te Deum. We praise thee, O God, he announced, adding, Oh, no, we don't, it's Friday. <laughs> but we do. Every day I will give thanks to you. Every day I will praise your name. You know, the Israelites in the Old Testament were commanded to sacrifice a sin offering for atonement every day, and a burnt offering for worship every day, morning and evening. And the prospect of having their daily sacrifices suspended in the time of Antichrist, of which we read in Daniel chapter 8, was to them horrific. How could you live day by day without daily worship, they asked. The earliest Christians in Jerusalem were the same. Day by day, Luke tells us in Acts 2, attending the temple, breaking bread in one another's homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. 
day by day by day. We need to learn to do that too, every day. Not necessarily in church, but in our home, until our life is pervaded with worship, until work becomes worship and offering of praise to God, and our whole being is orientated Godward, and worship is the very fabric of our lives. Well, with that introduction, I want to ask you to turn to the text. You'll find the basis of what we're going to think and say together in Psalm 145 that June read to us. In the Old Testament section of the Church Bible, it's page 555. 555. Psalm 145, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Praise your name forever and ever. Notice the repetition of his name. I'll bless your name. The name of God is the revelation of the nature and the character of God. We praise God for his name, for who he is. And we praise him as our king. This psalm is about the kingdom of God. Glance on to verse 11. They'll speak of the glory of your kingdom. To make known to the sons of men your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is of an everlasting kingdom. It's not surprising that Jesus could echo that in giving us the Lord's Prayer. May your name be honored and your kingdom come. The name of God and the kingdom of God are the grand obsession of the people of God. That his name may be given the honor that is due to it and his kingdom be recognized and extended. Now, Psalm 145 is the last of eight so-called acrostic or alphabetical psalms in the Psalter. Psalms, that is to say, whose verses, one after the other, begin with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So this psalm is structured with skillful craftsmanship. And we will not be surprised that the craftsmanship extends beyond the verbal structure to the substance of what he is saying. And I want to suggest to you that his daily worship rests upon four great affirmations about God the King which he makes in the psalm. Firstly, the Lord is great. Verses 3 to 7. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. The greatness of God is seen, the psalmist goes on, in his works, called at the end of verse 4, his mighty acts, at the end of verse 5, his wondrous works, at the beginning of verse 6, the might of his terrible or awesome acts. What are these deeds or acts in which the greatness of the Lord is displayed? Well, to begin with, of course, they are acts of creation. It was by his great power and outstretched arm that he's made the heavens and the earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars are the works of his fingers in biblical language. 
His greatness is seen in the creation. But his greatness is seen also in mighty deeds of redemption. For the same strong arm of God brought Israel out of Egyptian captivity, planted them in the promised land, and in our Christian perspective that same outstretched arm of God has raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's the greatness of God displayed in his mighty deeds of creation and redemption. So, I will extol thee, my God and King. Praise thy name forever and ever. Every day I will bless thee and praise thy name forever and ever. Because thou art great. And because I have seen thy greatness in these mighty deeds of creation and salvation. Then secondly, the Lord is not any great, but the Lord is gracious. Verses 8 to 13. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Verse 3. The Lord is great. Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His compassion is over all that he has made. Now, that verse 8 is a plain quotation from Exodus 34 verse 6, in which Yahweh, the Lord, proclaims his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and of great kindness, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's a quotation from that revelation of the covenant God of Israel, and if his greatness has been displayed in creation and redemption, his graciousness is displayed supremely in his forgiveness. Made possible again from our Christian perspective only because our Saviour Jesus Christ identified himself with our sin and guilt and bore in his innocent person the condemnation that our sins deserved. This is his goodness. This is his compassion to all that he has made. And I think that it means all that he has remade. All who are his saints, his holy people, whom he has taken to be his own people. They, verse 11, shall speak of the glory of his kingdom. For there is no greater blessing of the kingdom of God than his gracious forgiveness of our sins. That's why the very heart of Christian worship is to praise God for Jesus Christ and to praise Jesus Christ for his self-giving love and his great salvation through his death and resurrection. I will bless you and extol you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever, for you're not any great but gracious, abounding in steadfast love and compassion. And then thirdly, the Lord is faithful, verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, the second part, phrase that interestingly dropped out of the Hebrew text, but is put back in again because one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet is missing if it's omitted. 
that it's been preserved by the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and one or two other versions. So back in it has gone, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is great, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is faithful in all his works, words, that is faithful to all his promises, and gracious in all his deeds. He upholds the falling, he raises those who are bowed down, the eyes of all look to him, and so on. You see, after speaking of God's greatness and his mighty acts of creation and redemption, and of his graciousness in forgiving the sins of Israel and making them his people, the psalmist goes on logically to write of the faithfulness of God. Because once God has created, he does not abandon that which he has made. Whether what he has made is the universe, or whether what he has made is the new creation, the redeemed community, the church. But what God has created, he never abandons. He is faithful to what he has made. Has he created the universe? Then he sustains it. Has he created the church? Then he upholds it in fidelity to his covenant people. Whatever God has made by his power, he sustains by his faithfulness. And that is true of both creations, the material and spiritual creations, as the psalmist goes on to say, verse 14 again, he upholds all who are falling. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing, feeding the birds, clothing the lilies of the field, as Jesus echoed in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord is just in all his ways, kind in all his doings, faithful, faithful, to what he has made. So again we extol God and praise his name every day because he is a faithful God. And then fourthly, verses 18 to 20, the Lord is near. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Now the nearness of God was a constant source of wonderment to Israel. Do you know that marvelous verse in Deuteronomy? where Moses says, what great nation is there, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us when we call upon him. Deuteronomy 4 verse 7, it's a great text. One of the unique things about Israel was the nearness of God to them. God's people knew that they could never escape from him. He bound himself to them by this solemn covenant and they could never escape from his presence. If they ascended into heaven, they'd find him there. If they descended into Sheol, the abode of the dead, they would find him there. If they took the wings of the morning and traveled to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth or the sea, even there, his hand would hold them and his right hand would uh, keep and guide them. They could not escape from God. Very different then was Baal, the heathen fertility god of the land of Canaan, Baal. When his prophets called upon him, he was not near to them. He was far away. You remember in the days of Elijah, 
From morning until noon they called upon him, those false prophets, O Baal, hear us. But there was no answer. So Elijah mocked them. Perhaps he's gone on a journey. He's far away. Perhaps he's busy, preoccupied with this or that. Maybe he's even asleep and you need to shout louder to waken him. And so from noon to sunset they shouted louder and gashed themselves until the blood flowed. They raved at Baal, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice. Nobody answered and nobody heeded. Now look at verses 18 to 20 by contrast. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. He preserves those who love him. It's only the wicked who reject him that he will destroy. Now if that was true in Old Testament days, for God's covenant people, how much more true must it be for you and me who live in days in which God has come near to us through Jesus Christ and we may draw near to him through Jesus Christ with nothing between. No wonder Paul could affirm the Lord is near. Philippians 4 verse 5. He was in prison. He was in custody. He was manacled to a Roman soldier. His freedom had been taken away from him. But the Lord was near. I want to bear testimony to that truth this morning. Psalm 145 verse 18 means a great deal to me. Nearly 25 years ago, I was in Melbourne in Australia on the threshold of a university mission. My friends and I had just been involved in a university mission in Sydney. And I was exhausted after it. During that university mission, I'd had a telephone call from London to say that my father had died. And it was grievously uh, painful to be thousands of miles away from home. And I was not only exhausted, I'd been assaulted by what the Australians call a wog, which we call a bug. And I'd lost my voice, and I was feeling sick. And I was feeling lonely, and I was thoroughly disinclined to start another mission. It began tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow. Here I was, physically fatigued, spiritually under the weather and barren. How can you go into a mission when you're feeling like that? The Lord seemed far, far, far away. And I locked myself into my room in the house in which I was staying with friends and fell on my knees and prayed. And in the course of some hours of prayer, I was led to this verse. I think I was reading the psalm. And verse 18 stood out to me. It's been with me ever since. The Lord is near to those who call upon him, to those who call upon him in truth. I sought to fulfill the promise, or rather the conditions, that the Lord is near only to those who call upon him and only to those who call upon him in truth, in sincerity, who are determined to find him and come into his presence and know him and love him and obey him. And I cried to God. I said, Lord, I'm calling upon you. 
I'm calling upon you as far as I know in truth. I mean it. I want to know you. And I can only tell you that the Lord was gracious to me and drew near to me again. But when we draw near to God, it's another great promise in James 4 verse 7. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He lifted up the light of his countenance upon me. And I went into that mission again, confident of his presence and of his blessing. Again and again I've claimed the truth of verse 18. It's written in my heart and memory. The Lord is near. So the Lord is great in works of creation and redemption. And the Lord is gracious in the forgiveness of our sins. And the Lord is faithful to his promises, upholding all that he has made. And the Lord is near to those who call upon him. No wonder the psalmist ends in verse 21, My mouth, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. It's a very personal and individual thing. But he goes on, Let all flesh bear, bless his holy name forever and ever. He goes from himself as an individual to the whole of humanity, the coming to recognize the uniqueness of God. He desires the rest of mankind to acknowledge him also. So, let us conclude. How can we worship God daily? I don't know about you, but it's so easy to grow stale, isn't it? It's bad enough to have to go to the office every day. Bad enough to have to cook the meals and wash the dishes every day. It gets boring. Monotonous routine is a trial to the flesh. We want something new, new toys, new gadgets, new thrills, new experiences, new friends, new books, new records. You can't abide the same old thing every day. It's boring. I don't know if you know the story from our clubhouse, but uh, some years ago in our community centre, well still I think they have an old people's club and after the old people's luncheon they used once a week to have an entertainment and one good lady member of the congregation is no longer here was seeking to entertain these old folk uh, with some flower arranging and a lecture on flower arranging. There was a little old lady in the front uh, pew who was deaf as a post. She couldn't hear anything the lecturer was saying. She turned to her neighbour said in a loud voice, Isn't it boring? <laughs> and we all find it so. We do the same old thing each day. It gets stale and boring. So how can it be fresh? That's the question with which we end. Now don't misunderstand daily worship. We're not invi being invited to go through a set formula every day like a parrot. We're not being asked even to make a liturgical recitation which means nothing to our heart and mind. Jesus forbade vain repetitions. That is the meaningless and mindless repetition of words. So how? Well the answer is very simple. Our worship can be fresh every day if God's mercies are new to us every day. In other words, it's fresh grace that we thought of last week 
that begets fresh worship, which is our topic today. That's why daily Bible meditation is indispensable to daily worship, because the Bible is the only book in the world that has been written by God about God. God is its author and God is its subject. It is a self-disclosure of God. If we want to know God, we've got to read the scriptures. And as we meditate, we cry to the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds that we may grasp with fresh wonder the greatness and the graciousness and the faithfulness and the nearness of our God. And then when the Holy Spirit enables our hearts and minds to absorb his mercies afresh, then he puts a new song in our mouth, even praise unto our God. I want to suggest you try beginning each day with the doxology. I talked about getting up in the morning last week. Why not when the alarm clock goes off, swing your legs out of bed. I don't recommend jumping up unless you're young and vigorous. You may faint as I did one day. I used to have two alarm clocks, one by my bedside and the other like a fire engine at the other end of the room. And uh, if I didn't wake the first time, I'd certainly wake the second, and it was so deafening, I used to leap up and stop it, lest my brain would get uh, blown. And one day I did it, and uh, next thing I knew, I'd woken up on the floor. So I don't rec re uh, recommend that, but I do recommend swinging your legs out of bed and sitting on the bed until the dizziness goes and... I, I, I do recommend some deep breathing exercises and some stretching exercises and while you're sitting on the bed I said last week I like to say good morning Heavenly Father I thank you for being my father and making me your child good morning Lord Jesus it's a joy to be your disciple and having you as Savior and Lord good morning Holy Spirit it's good to have you within and to be part of your temple in which you dwell. And then glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and shall be forever. And then throughout the day it becomes more easy to worship God day by day and minute by minute as our whole life is orientated towards him. Let us pray. We turn our <clears throat> being towards him, our heart and mind. We bow down in humility before him, before the infinitely great. We worship him for his greatness in creation and redemption, for his graciousness in the forgiveness of our sins, for his faithfulness to his promises, for his nearness to us when we call upon him. Heavenly Father, grant through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the inspiration of your Spirit, we may praise you every day, and that every minute of the day our being may be focused upon you for the everlasting glory of your great name we pray Amen
You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.